There is a thematic tension in the liturgical selections for Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah is the celebration of creation, the birthday of the world, and it exhorts us to see Teshuvah change as a process of creation, using the special power we share with God of being able to be creators in this way. Hence my sermon yesterday on asking ourselves what we want to create in this world and in this life and in the year, rather than living a life of self-important drama. And so the Torah portion speaks of Hagar, Sarah, and Hannah, creating by giving life, by giving birth. And we celebrate the miracle from barrenness to birth. While we should likely take this at its deep level as applying to all of our lives, it's hard not to remain at the surface, at the literal level, that somehow a woman bearing a child is a point of the holiday. Causes me to reflect on the idealization of a woman's fertility that can pervade our tradition. For centuries, if not longer, Jewish women have been told that they don't need to go to synagogue, don't need an advanced Jewish education, don't need to be rabbis, because they are already holy. They are already godlike because they give birth. They've been asked not to notice how self-serving this is to the men, even as they, when facing fertility issues, are given a traditional prayer to become pregnant with a boy child. May he grow up to be a rabbi. As my wife was given by a congregant when we were facing fertility issues ourselves. Though it does not take long to see something self-serving in this idea, I'm asking us today to push beyond to the levels we don't reflect on enough. What does the idealization of a woman's fertility say about the place in the Jewish community of those not involved in trying to get pregnant? I admit I have been known on occasion to respond to the seemingly innocuous comment about women not becoming rabbis because they are divine-like life-givers to suggest When this is said, sometimes I've been known to say, absolutely. And for this reason, I think rabbinical schools and orthodox ones in particular should be filled with postmenopausal women. With the life giving out of the way and the wisdom that they have and the divine identification they have with God in a way that we'll never know, they would make the best rabbis. I actually think it's likely true. With all that life giving out of the way, Aren't they the most obligated to learn and to lead? And of course, I'm only half-joking because I think the Jewish community would be transformed for the better. What happens when our awe of childbirth, again, with all respect to the transformation of life that can come with pregnancy and that does come with parenting and that comes with children, and that's why I timed it for a child to enter the sanctuary just at this moment. But what happens when that awe, which is so real, becomes a cultural preoccupation of our community? What does it say about those not involved in creating children, those who are single, those who are divorced, those who are widowed, those who are childless, those who are retired, 
What message are they being sent about their holiness, about their place in community? One of the reasons that I've been thinking about them so much this year, as I imagine you have too, is while it doesn't make sense to somehow make a list of who suffers more during the pandemic because suffering is so well distributed, so tragically so, but as someone who does have children in the home and the unconditional love of um, a divine-like spouse, not because of the child-giving, but because of their ability to channel chesed and love and brilliance to me. I've been thinking about those who have been spending this pandemic alone. All kinds of people. How cut off they must feel. And it has made me sad. The thing that I may have been an instrument over the years of making them feel less than welcome in the holy community of our congregation. Because I participate in talking about the beauty of childbirth and talking about family and the importance of family and how one learns Judaism through family. And I often forget to mention them. I wonder how hurtful that has been. Even as deep down I know You really can be a great parent, and you can learn to love your children and grandchildren without Judaism. So why do I sometimes say that that's what it's about? Is it a Jewish value that marriage can bring fulfillment and possibility? Yes, it is. Is it a Jewish value to express nothing but the deepest compassion and really the deepest for couples who face fertility issues? Yes. But is it not also a Jewish value to recognize that not all marriages bring fulfillment? That not not all pairings are compatible or healthy? Yes, it is. Is it not also a Jewish value that families need not be defined biologically? Yes, it is. I promise I will not continue to use this mask. So I mentioned that there's a tension in the liturgical readings. Think about it. Hagar, so focused on the child, her family, that she forgets the promise of the great nation he'll found, as I spoke about yesterday. Maybe there's a hint that child rearing is so stressful, so labor-intensive, that a focus on the immediate conditions of it can obscure a perspective that extends outside the family and a perspective on the future, the future of the planet, the future of the people. Chana. Well, there it's clearly about childbirth. But then she essentially gives away the child by dedicating him to the service in the priesthood. What's that move about? And the Akedah today, the binding of Isaac, for all of its theological dimensions, interpretations, one of those rays of light coming off of its sapphire facets is its demand that Avraham believe in the future of the people as overriding just the life of his son. He too has the promise that the future of the people will continue, including this son. 
And he sees both at the same time. The holiday's theme seems to be about fertility and family, but it's actually about covenant. It's not a holiday about giving birth to a child. It's about covenantal faith in the future, covenantal faith in our people and its projects. It's about the faith and the future of our community and the world. Lador Vador. It doesn't have to be your Lador Vador. Sometimes that obscures the mission that we have. What covenant allows, it's like a relay race. You hand the baton to the next generation so we can achieve projects that this community in Torah is committed to over many, many generations. As we stand at the end of the Torah and it says, choose life, we find the gigantic diamonds covering the letters of saying, a life for your children and your children's children. And the your doesn't have to be your personal children. It's the children of the people. Let's think just a moment about some of our greatest leaders. Is it possible that our focus on life cycle events has obscured from us the role that single people or childless married people can play in the future of our community? Is it not lost on us that leaders here in this congregation on staff are people that may not be married, may not get married, or may not choose to have children? Is it lost on me that non-synagogue programs around the country alternatives to synagogues. And we say, oh, it's because the rabbi doesn't talk so long or they don't have a rabbi or they don't raise money or whatever it is. Is it possible that a lot of it has to do with them attracting people who are childless, who don't feel embraced within the synagogues around them? And what do they feel when they read about Miriam? That we have Aaron and Moshe and Miriam, a prophetess, a leader, Perhaps the first liturgist, if we attribute the Micha Mocha to her instead of Avraham, as some scholars do. She doesn't get married. She doesn't have children. We can make up a midrash about it. How do they feel when they read that? And then they don't feel welcome within the synagogue. Do we have a George Washington in Judaism, a father of our country? No. We have an M. Be Yisrael. We have a mother of Israel. And she is not a fable. She is historical. What most historical scholars believe, and the archaeology at Chazor seems to justify, the way we went from disparate tribes to coming together to confederate as a people was under the auspices of Devorah, of the prophetess and judge Deborah, a real true historical feature And the hymn about her, which matches the hymn of Miriam, and it's the hymn of Devorah, is also likely, like the hymn I mentioned, the two oldest parts of the Torah. She is called um, an Eshet Lapidot, which is usually translated the wife of Lapidot, but we don't hear anything else about him, and we don't hear anything about children. And so it doesn't show up in any of the um, genealogies that are there. So maybe she's married and childless. Or maybe, as some people think, it's an epithet that doesn't mean wife of Lapidot, but it means um, 
It refers to the person who has the, furnishes the wicks for the lamps. She is a lamplighter. She's a woman on fire. She's a torch to the people. She is called the mother of Israel. She unified the tribes historically to make way for a kingship that did not include women. Recently, when we were studying Tzolofachad's daughters, famous case of the five sisters who um, are born without a brother and go to Moses to complain that they should inherit uh, and not be deprived of inheriting, the rabbinic materials are pretty fun, and they attribute amazing things to the daughters of Tzolofachad. One of them is that they knew how to work together uh, because they weren't focused, like men are, mostly on themselves. Take that observation as you will. A little bit of a collaborative work in the corporate sphere by women versus men's characteristics as leaders. Said that they were brilliant. It reminds me of Ruth Bader Ginsburg because it said they, they got Moses on an argument because he said he was teaching about um, yibum, about the requirement that someone must marry the wife of someone whose husband has died if they didn't have children. And she said, okay, well, then you have to marry our mom. Um, And he said, no, well, she has children, you guys. And she said, well, you just said that we can't inherit because our father didn't have children. And it reminded me of the way Ruth Bader Ginsburg and other leaders argued before the Supreme Court to create protections for women in this country. But then there's the third and final attribute um, given to them in Tractate Bhava Batra in the Talmud. It says, and third, they were perfectly virtuous since they married only men who were worthy of them. They waited to get married till they met someone worthy of them. And then one of the commentators adds, um, I say they waited until 40 and that they didn't have children. They waited until after fertility age. The Yalkut Shimoni says, Moshe said to them, Israel is asking, when they came to him, Moshe said, why are you arguing about this? And they said, we demand to have shares in the land of Israel. He said to them, haven't you heard what the people are telling me? All of the Israel men are asking to return to Egypt. And you're sitting here arguing with me to get an inheritance in the land we have not yet entered, not yet fought for. And they answered, we know that in the end, we will take possession of the land, and we believe in the future. Rashi comments on this. Because of this, the edict that the generation die in the wilderness did not apply to the women. Is there a way we can make more room in our hearts and in our community for people who may be childless in different ways And yet, when we think about Miriam, we think about Devorah, we think about the daughters of Tzolofachad, they may not only have more time, but they may have a perspective on bringing the purposes of Torah to fruition in this world that is not limited to just the children, but the children's children and the children's children's children. They may have a greater way of leading us to ecological sustainability and the values in Judaism for those. They may be our teachers, 
they may be the ones that I say, can I, I turn over to you? Teaching Torah, teaching the values of Judaism to my children, and they do. I remember the first of our Torah I ever gave I, that I remember was when I was a grad student. I was in a big, fancy, independent minion. And I remember it was on the story of Nadav. So I signed up for it. And Nadav doesn't get married in, in uh, the, the Torah. And I was single for a long time. And I said to the, and I remember the thesis of the sermon was simple. It said, um, I said, look, if Judaism is only a nice way to raise the kids, then I'm moving on. Because I need more than that. I want to remember that on these days. Every religion and community has a right to have its boundaries. It's not about inclusion because inclusion is good. It's about whether the boundaries you draw are good boundaries and they're right boundaries. This is a boundary we need to move wider. They are our future. May we embrace them. May we become a synagogue that includes them. And I'm going to work harder. And every time you hear me say something like, the Hafta is really about loving your kids, I hope you don't hear it come from me. I hope you say the Hafta is about teaching. It's about teaching children, teaching the next generation, next generation and passing it on. May we remove our boundary, which never should have been there. May we grow from this idea that Judaism is about family to our commitment to covenant and to bringing Judaism and Torah to bear for the future. May we welcome them, and may we become whole in the doing.